Hello, you're here at Film Festival Reviews, a place where we get a chance to look at the film festival experience for the independent filmmaker as well as the discerning film lover. This is Christina Kotlar, I'm your host, and in this episode, I got a chance to talk to Catherine Weiler, Artistic Director of the High Falls Film Festival in Rochester, New York, and Nelson Page, entrepreneur, co-founder of the Lake Placid Film Festival, chairman of the Fort Lee Film Commission, and president of Galaxy Theatres. Both conversations are distinct, yet hit the mark about what film festivals are about. On being regional, profitable, finding its market niche, and in what's become a huge industry for big cities and regional communities. So, I got talking to Katherine Weiler, daughter of renowned Hollywood film director William Weiler, with Oscars and epics to his credit. She's an award-winning producer, and I had a wonderful opportunity to work with her a few years ago on getting films together for the High Falls Film Festival. I recall meeting her and saying I want to learn more about the acquisition process and she said okay I could use some help. So I worked with her on that um, for a couple of months uh, before the festival happened. Just happened this past weekend. So on the eve of last week's film festival in Rochester, New York, uh, we talked about um, about films that would appeal to everybody. And the bottom line for this festival is highlighting a woman in a creative role behind the camera to show the work women do and that they deserve more of it from Hollywood. You can read more about this on the website filmfestivalreviews.com and on the website there are links to what Katherine Weiler, Terry Lawler from New York Women in Film and Television, Martha Lawson and Sarah Browning have to say in response to a New York Times article about Hollywood being a gender balanced model for the rest of corporate America. If it was that balanced, maybe women wouldn't have to work so hard trying to get their films created and shown. But for now, here's our conversation last week before the start of the High Fall Film Festival. Enjoy the show. So, Catherine, how are you? Yeah, day before the festival, so it's always a very crazy time, but we have a great lineup, a bunch of great guests, so I'm very excited about it. I know. I've been looking at the website, and I'm seeing all the uh, the schedules that are coming up, and I know we try to get together at the Toronto Film Festival. What happened there? Well, that's the major place where we find films for this festival, because uh, that's where all the big fall movies premiere, and uh, since we are so close after Toronto... You know, we have uh, Copying Beethoven comes from Toronto. The Lives of Others was in Toronto, The Host. So that's a really important festival for us. Yeah, and I, I really, think I just got uh, overwhelmed there. I really enjoyed that festival also. That was my first time there. I know what you must have been going through because it was crazy. You know, everybody was just trying to meet people and trying to get the films and see the films and then talk to the uh, filmmakers and the distributors and everything. Did you have an idea of what you were looking for when you did get there? Uh, well, you know, I spent a fair amount of time researching what's what's coming there. So, I, you know, I know the filmmakers whose work I want to see. So, But there are always a lot of surprises. Certainly wasn't expecting the host okay. to be one of my favorites. Really? I didn't get to see that one. It's a Korean monster movie, and it is so much fun. Wonderful monster. It's a 
fun horror movie. I can't imagine horror movies being fun, but I trust your judgment here because I... Well, I you know, I'm not usually into horror movies at all. And I would say this is more like a comedy monster movie, but it's not really comedy. I mean, it's scary, but it's not gross. Okay, yeah, I know what you mean. I know exactly what you mean. And and then I see you have 13 Zametti there. I saw that. I think we might have seen that for Rebecca, but uh, I think it's really an interesting movie. Yeah, you're not really sure what's happening, and then when it does hit you, you're like, whoa. That's right. Right now, this is the day before the High Falls Film Festival, and uh, you're going to be really busy until Sunday, right? Well, actually, until Monday, because the last program is Sunday night, which is uh, going to be a tribute to the Pences, the people who started Telluride and just retired after 33 years. Uh, we're showing the first movie that they ever played at Telluride, which is a silent film, a really, a really adorable silent film from 1928 called Lonesome. And we're going to have with it the Alloy Orchestra, which is a three-piece orchestra that plays a lot for silent films on real instruments and instruments they've made up. I if you've them. ever seen, a, well, when you see a silent film with contemporary music, it brings the movie right up very close. I remember seeing them at, um, I forget, it was a museum, and they were showing a, a silent film, like from the 1930s, and there they were all set up in front, and it was fabulous. Especially and we also have, we have a late edition. Just yesterday, we got Dixie Chicks, Shut Up and Sing, and Barbara Coppola is coming with that on Thursday. Oh, I saw that in um, in Toronto. Incredible. I used to love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought it was really terrific, too. Yeah. Uh, we also have Agnieszka Holland coming with Copying Beethoven, and we have three uh, foreign film Oscar contenders, which are The Lives of Others, Avenue Montaigne, and After the Wedding. And we have, let's see, Famke Jansen and Shirley Knight. And I think one of our absolutely top entertainments is going to be the production designer, Stuart Craig, who's coming from London. He's done all the Harry Potter films. And he's going to bring some clips and concept drawings and talk about how he imagined Harry Potter's world. He's got three Oscars and six more nominations. Well, you know what? I'm really sorry that I'm not going to be there. I have this other engagement that I'm involved with. Uh, the, well, I understand. The Jersey Filmmakers of Tomorrow. We're bringing Celeste home on Friday and for the dinner on Saturday, showing her film, Gentleman's Agreement, where she won an Academy Award. So That'll be a good event, too. Oh, it's going to be a great event. But when I, they told me the date of it, I bit my lip and I said, oh, yeah. I know it's during the High Falls Film Festival. Sure. And there wasn't really very much I could do about it at the time. But uh, I know from working with you a few years back on this festival, you're always planning something. You're always looking at all these films. I know how far ahead you do work on this. How has the festival changed, or do you think it has changed uh, in recent years? Well, it's really just grown. I'd say that we are stick to our original idea of programming a festival for everybody with movies that uh, appeal to all kinds of tastes. And the bottom line is that every film, uh, we highlight the work of a woman in a creative role behind the camera to show the work that women do and that they deserve more of it from Hollywood.
because you know they're still they're still getting such a small piece of the pie. Absolutely. Do you see a change in independent film industry, as it were, for the the films that are coming out now? Well, I guess it's been a good long time since the studios have muscled in a lot, but at the same time, there still are a lot of people who are able to make their movies even outside of the specialty arms. So, I don't know. It seems very alive and well to me. Yeah. We have, uh, let's see, we have The Treatment. We have Open Window. Just talking about features. Uh, We have various documentaries that are going to have theatrical releases like Absolute Wilson, Night of the White Pants. How many people do you get to uh, come to this festival? At the moment, we get about eight or 9,000, which is, you know, it's still a small regional festival, but at the same time, it's got an international reach. Yeah, and it's um, so close after Toronto, but in a couple of months, uh, we have Sundance coming up, too, so you're like right smack in the middle. Well, at the same time, we're behind a bunch of other big New York festivals, New York Film Festival and the Hamptons, so we realize that in terms of audience, we really pull from Buffalo, Syracuse, Rochester area. Yeah, I was in uh, Rochester just um, a couple of weeks ago, actually. It's huge. Well, it's a, ter- it's a terrific town. Yeah, yeah. It's I got think... a very good film culture because of Kodak and because of the George Eastman House. Yeah, I have to get up there. I know, um, but... Good. Uh, were you here for the New York Festival or for the Hamptons also? No, uh, I, I went to the, actually, I went to the opening night of the New York Film Festival, but I, I never can go to the Hamptons. Because it's just too, it's just right smack in the middle of my final preparation. Yeah, you have so much to do there. Are you still working? I forget what her name was. Uh, She was really helping you out. Ruth Cowing? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. She's now the festival director, and I'm the artistic director. Okay. But I tell you something, I have to run. Okay. I'm supposed to be somewhere at 7. Okay. Well, Catherine, thank you so much, and uh, I really appreciate the time that you're taking here because I know you're really, really busy. Okay. And I'd love to get you here in New York sometime, okay? Sure. Absolutely. You are just a wealth of information. We'll catch up, and I'd love to have a drink with you sometime. Okay, great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Okay. Thank you, Catherine, and good luck. Okay. Bye. Okay, Catherine is great. She's an excellent person to hear from. She works hard finding these incredible films and showcasing films made by women, as well as being a champion for film restoration. I especially love the fact that she included a silent film in the festival, and this provides an opportunity for the audience to experience film history, um, where it all began. And that's what the Fort Lee Film Commission is all about. Fort Lee, New Jersey is the birthplace of the motion picture industry before there was a Hollywood. I caught up with Nelson Page, chairman of the Fort Lee Film Commission, on the eve of their annual awards banquet. This year they honored Academy Award winner Celeste Holm and Lou Costello's daughter, Chris Costello, among others, as well as announcing winners of the Jersey Filmmakers of Tomorrow student film competition. Nelson is a film buff, an entrepreneur, and as an owner-operator of 25 movie theaters, he certainly knows a lot about the business side of film distribution and film festival operations. We cover a lot of topics in this conversation, so uh, listen in. Hey. I'm on on. Yeah, you're on, and I'm on, and uh, here we are in the 
offices of the Galaxy Theaters. That's right. And I'm speaking with Nelson Page, who is the owner of the Galaxy Theaters. And Nelson, you are a man who wears many hats. Sometimes too many. And one of the things this past week, I had a lot of different elements that interconnected, and mm -hmm. I call the show My Six Degrees. Mm -hmm. And it connected war and water polo. And you got involved in that. Mm -hmm. As well, because I was talking to a filmmaker who did a film on water polo, her son's achievement in the Olympics called Beneath the Surface. Mm -hmm. And you were involved in the, the fact that you are the founder of the Lake Placid. Co-founder and uh, chairman of the um, Adirondack Film Society, which is also the uh, sponsoring entity of the uh, Lake Placid Film Forum. And how long ago did you start with that? That was eight years ago. And it's, uh, you know, there are festivals all over the place. We thought we'd be a little different and call it forum instead of festival because we wanted to give people the opportunity to come together and be able to see, you know, their favorite director or their favorite actor or their favorite, you know, producer or screenwriter, you know, on the street. You know, Lake Class is a little community known for sports, the uh, site of two Winter Olympics. And uh, we want to be able to, you know, stop Tony Shalhoub on the street or, you know, Campbell Scott or Patricia Clarkson or, you know, Norman Jewison and be able to say hello. And, and it worked out very nicely. It's in a very contained environment. And at one point in time, we started out our first year. We thought that uh, we would start slowly in that first year. There was a four-day event. We had 6,000 people show up for it. And uh, unfortunately, as time has gone by, it's less and less because it's become less of a, uh, of a hyper-regional event and more of a local event because as we became successful, more and more festivals sprang up. I mean, Saratoga, Woodstock, Plattsburgh. And, you know, there's only so many dollars and there are only so many people who have the time and are inclined to, you know, go up to festivals in the North Country. And we skipped the year, hoping that, that we could regenerate, you know, interest. And we did. This past year was very, very good for us. But it's, uh, you know, it's all a matter of uh, selection of film and the people that you could bring into uh, to be a part of uh, your event. Uh, our artistic director is the uh, former um, uh, reviewer for the Daily News, Kathleen Carroll. And Kathleen's a wonderful lady, and she scours, you know, all the festivals looking for interesting films, unique films, unique, pro you know, properties that uh, either have been very successful in other festivals or the occasional, you know, world premiere. Those are always hard to come by because you need cooperation of, you know, film companies and distributors who want to participate and who are willing to spend the money to bring the people up who are involved with the film. If not, you know, you're going to be, you know, hunting around for, you you know, people uh, on the West Coast and uh, and from Europe and you have to fly them in and all of a sudden your budget goes from 160000 to 450000 because you're flying people in from all over the place. Uh, although in the old adage, um, Lake Placid has two seasons, that's winter and July 4th. So even even in even in June, you can get a little snow, and if you look on Whiteface Mountain, you'll see snow uh, still up uh, still up on top of the mountain. So you just have to be careful because you never want to be in April or May. We've always run in June because even then we can wind up getting snowed out, and uh, you know now all of a sudden you have a quarter million dollars in budgeted activities, and you get wiped out. There is no direct way to get to. Lake Placid unless you hop on the north way and drive. Uh, the train drops you off 35 miles away somewhere else. You have to ferry people in that way anyway. So in the old days, you know, going back to, you know, 32 Olympics, you could take a train up, but those days were long gone. We still think it's a, uh, it's a great place to have an event, but um, Tribeca really hurt us because a lot of the monies from the state went to Tribeca. Uh, 
American Express, all their monies goes to Tribeca. And whereas I appreciate what they do, you know, at Tribeca, it's a very diffused event and it's scattered all over the place. And it is totally the antithesis of what we try and do in Lake Placid, which is keeping it small, intimate, and accessible. And Tribeca is totally diffused in so many different locations that it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. But when you look at sponsors, they look at that because it's in Manhattan as being a tremendous event. And uh, I've gone to many things there. And you, you either wind up at a screening where there's nobody there or one that you couldn't get a ticket if you offered up your mother. We try and make it so that everybody has accessibility. I appreciate that very much because I have to admit that Tribeca was very difficult to get to these locations. Mm -hmm. And then when you do get there, you couldn't get in or whatever. It wasn't as accessible. Toronto, on the other hand, was a huge festival, but very, very contained, mm -hmm. even though you know, it was bursting at the seams. I was able to get into as many of the films as I really wanted to. And again, I, Toronto is a wonderful example of a, of a mega festival done to perfection. They do a great job up there. And, you know, we always thought that we could get some of the splash from that. You know, because like it's just over the border. You're not talking many hours difference there. And yet the Canadians have a very active, you know, governmental support of, of the arts and certainly of film. Uh, and we thought we could get some of that too. And one of the reasons why, not only because of the uh, great works that he's done, the great films that he's produced and directed over the years, but it's one of the reasons why we brought Norman Jewison down in our second year. And um, he was a great honoree and certainly probably one of the most talented men I've ever met. But we never got any interest after that from the Canadian Film Board or anything. And I, I always thought that was a little, because you're always on the hunt. I have a very quick story. Can I relate it to you? Go ahead. In, re in reference to Norman Jewison. You know, um, he was a, uh, a wonderful guest. And we brought him in. And, of course, we had a banquet with 500 tickets sold. And uh, we were going to present him with his award that night. His uh, secretary was supposed to provide us with a tribute reel. And uh, I went up to him and I said, look, I said, uh, do you have your tribute reel? And he said, well, I don't have it with me. So-and-so is supposed to send it to you, so um, just check with her. And so we checked with her and she said, well, I gave it to, to Mr. Jewison to give it to you. And I said, well, he doesn't have it. And you're telling me you don't have it. So what do we do now? And at that particular moment in time, it was the day of his tribute. So we scoured everything. I said, well, we, he had done a show for HBO, and we figured, well, we're going to at least have that. Of course, we, we, we put it in the machine about an hour before the uh, tribute, and the HBO logo comes up, and then it's three minutes of static, and then the HBO logo comes on. It fades out. I said, uh-oh, we're in trouble. So what I did was I sent uh, one of the, uh, the, the guys you know, um, on the team out. I said, go to a video store, get me Fiddler on the Roof, <laughs> a soldier's story. The Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, uh, and justice for all, and um, whatever. Um, just, you know, and, and he ran out and he got every Jewish film there was, and we did a live tribute. I mean, but instead of just doing clips, we did actual scenes. Okay. So luckily I knew these films well enough from beginning to end, queued them up, and then faded from one to another, and this is on this 12 by 15 foot screen. And of course, the, you know, the audience was particularly appreciative, and uh, we did the rest of the program. And when we went over later on, he said to me, which was a wonderful tribute, he said, who did that? I said, well, you see that guy over there? It's Alan Hoffmanis and myself. I said, we're the ones who did that. He goes, may I just compliment you both, because you guys really must love film. Wasn't that nice? That <laughs>
<laughs> it really was a nice thing for somebody of his caliber and his talent to be able to compliment both Alan and I on that. And uh, and yes, oh, by the way, we do really love film. Otherwise, we couldn't do all this nonsense. Oh, absolutely. You look at it, you understand it, you see it, and you're saying, hmm, this really shows what his work is all about. Well, we had the, the one year Milos Forman was, uh, was our... Uh, tribute and um, of course we were screening Amadeus you know I just wanted to run the film through run the print through to make sure it looked good and he came in and uh, I was introduced to him and I said hey nice print don't you think and he goes uh, well yeah I said look 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 at the color you know yeah 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 I said well I'm sure you you have your own print and I'm sure it looks better than this but we're very happy to have this caliber print and he looked at me and said look that's the past I'm trying to finance three projects now he had just uh, completed at that time Man on the Moon with Jim Carrey, and even though it was a critical success, it just didn't do anything at the box office. So he was visibly nervous about, you know, funding, you know, future projects. And he said, "Look, he said, I got a wife and kids to feed here. I mean, you know, this is business." And I think sometimes we forget that these guys have to make a living too. And no truer words in this business than "You're only as good as your last credit." Ooh. <laughs> Really, I mean, everybody wants to be Spielberg or De Niro or Scorsese or, you know, but you're only as good as your last credit. And it is, you know, an art form, but it became an art form through the the fact that it was a business to begin with. You know, we, we have, of course, the, the mutual connection with Fort Lee. And obviously at a time when, you know, Nickelodeons were no art form, just a business. People like Goldwyn and Zucker and, uh, and Marcus Lowe, uh, they were all doing different things and they would see lines wrapped around the block and people actually paying a nickel to see a film that they would stand up on a little box and look in. And he was saying, you know, to himself, Zucker especially, you know, it's amazing that they pay for the product before they even see it. It's cash, cash, cash. And that's what really intrigued these guys. A lot of them immigrants from Europe, that people were actually forking over money for something they knew nothing about. And uh, business became an art form because of the stories that were told on film and done in such a way that they would last in our memories. And each time we would see the film, it was like, reliving part in our unique personal history or actually revisiting an old friend. But that's how it became an art form. Once people forget that it's a business, they're in trouble. Let's go and uh, talk a little bit about the Fort Lee Film Commission. Mm -hmm. You are chairman. You're the chairman of the Fort Lee Film Commission here and just I didn't know very much about it until I found out what you were doing a film restoration film series from the Lafayette Theater in, in mm -hmm. Suffern and then it sort of snowballed into the cliffhanger and everything else and then I came to a meeting and that's how I got involved <laughs> but first thing that always seems to really get people crazy is when you you know tell them that is the birthplace of the American motion picture industry and they go huh I think people are totally unaware that the first concerted industrial effort to mass produce films on a grand scale was in Fort Lake. I mean the offices and some small studios of American Biograph and some other companies were located in New York but they wanted more bucolic settings and they wanted cliffs, they wanted forts and they wanted buildings and they wanted streets and they wanted you know a variety of different landscapes to be able to film. Couldn't do that in New York City uh, so they went someplace where they could get easy access, take the ferry across to New Jersey, and bang, there it was. But in the meantime, decorating shops, laboratories to process the films, and a very willing, able, and eager workforce was available there. And probably from the late 
tens to the late teens, between the 10 and the 12 year period, that became the center of movie making in the entire world. And you have many, many people, including, of course, D.W. Griffith and Murray Pickford and Alice Keep Lachey and uh, Fatty Arbuckle and Dita Barra and the list goes on, you know, Gloria Swanson. So many people who got their careers started there. William Fox built his first studio. Goldwyn, Selznick, you know, of course, you know, Universal Pictures. They all, they all pretty much had their start there. Didn't last, and it didn't last for tremendous amount of reasons. Um, one of them is just that uh, I think, you know, if you were uh, at that particular time needed 300 days of light where there were electric lights, you would have to be in a position where you needed more sunshine than the uh, New Jersey skies would give you. I also think that there was a, a tremendous apathy in the area. You were bringing all sorts of unique characters into the community. You had, uh, you know, charlatans, you had gamblers, women of less virtue, <laughs> all sorts of uh, actors coming in and coming out. And I think um, that uh, created a moral dilemma for the people in town. And uh, I also think that uh, out in California, they were very, very aggressive in marketing the idea of uh, come here and let's build an industry, whereas in New Jersey it was, you know, hey, if you leave, good riddance to you. And, uh, oh, that's unfortunate. It was, and it certainly once it happened, they all looked around and said, what the heck happened? Because not, not only did the, the, the films leave, but also the jobs left, too. And, you know, there's an interesting shot that I saw not too long ago of a telephone pole with film strewn all up inside the wires and a, and a 2,000-foot metal projection reel hanging there. And, you know, there's just tumbleweed rolling down Main Street, which is really how aggressively the um, film companies were a part of that community and how vacant it became once they left. It was a shame. So what the Film Commission tries to do is it tries to look at the history of filmmaking in not only uh, Fort Lee but in all of New Jersey and develop an appreciation for that. We also look at a lot of the films that were made there and look for examples of those feature films. Uh, most recently, and most notably, the 1912 American Eclair film, which was Robin Hood, the first Robin Hood pr produced domestically. We've just restored that. And uh, there's so many other films out there. You know, The Cliffhangers, The House of Hate, Musketeers of Pig's Alley, and it's films we want to see restored and, and shown to uh, a public that I think would be amazed that uh, these things were actually done in New Jersey. I'm really a little surprised that the history has been kind of forgotten. I'm very happy that this Fort Lee Film Commission has decided to make that their mission. Now, not only are you doing the film history and the film restorations, but you're also looking towards the future. We just did a festival here in Teaneck, which is where one of my theaters is. And these people worked very hard, and a couple of foundations got involved, and it was a lot of fun. But I always said, you know, there's got to be a reason why we're doing this. And you have to you know, have to make that very clear, because once, and I'm not saying a theme, but why would people be interested to come to your festival as opposed to going somewhere else? And when we started discussing a celebration of film and filmmaking, I said, we're we're not going to compete with, you know, the, the myriad of different um, film festivals out there. I said, but what is lacking is an ability for young people to be able to show their films and have an outlet to show their films. And so we uh, hit upon the idea of doing a Young Filmmakers um, Festival. We uh, named it the Jersey Filmmakers of Tomorrow. We approached the county executive, Dennis McNerney, great visionary decided that uh, he was going to come on board. And so the county of uh, Bergen and uh, Fort Lee have teamed up to really produce a wonderful program. We, we do have, well, you would know better than anybody. You're the director of the program. <laughs> Kind of fun looking at all the films that they were showing. Now, how many how many applicants did we actually wind up with this year? Um, uh, between thirty-five and forty. All right, 
That's a lot of work yeah. with a lot of young people. Yeah. And you know, we have to we go through an audience award selection, mm -hmm. and then we go through a um, a panel selection where you know we we do go for a first place, a second place, and an honorable mention. And uh, these awards are given at our annual banquet. And we showed the finalists at the Teaneck Film Festival, mm -hmm. and also uh, Cape May Film Festival had asked to show the student films down there as well. Right, and we know that they will also be showing at the Garden State Film Festival. And uh, do you think? That that um, you know that there's 2,600 film festivals going on in the world this year. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that it's a win-win situation for the filmmakers to be able to show their films in a variety of festivals. Mm -hmm. And markets, um, you know. And markets, and also for the, the cities in the off-season or whatever. How do you see it down the road? Well, there are very few festivals that have been established as for-profit entities. So those that are will be the strongest because they have developed ways of funding and financing in a way that um, your not-for-profit entities are struggling to find. I'm a not-for-profit up in Lake Placid. And our problem has been that the New York Council of the Arts and um, a lot of the monies that were generated from the uh, state funds have now been totally diluted between all these other entities that have sprung up that you're going to find eventually that people are just not going to be able to continue to count on monies from the state. Sponsorship dollars have certainly dried up because there are just too many people asking for too much money, all trying to do the same thing. The ones that will survive will be the ones that appeal to the imagination the most. So, there are three things that are going to determine success. What is the destination? If we're showing it in Bayonne, New Jersey, all due respect to Bayonne, nobody's going to go. If you're showing it in San Diego, California, all right, two, what are your venues? You're going to show it in some broken down movie theater. <laughs> At the end of a dead end street, it's not going to work for you. No one town is going to support one festival. Festivals, by their very nature, have to be regional. You can't count on a town or a county. You have to really count on a region to be able to support these things. And that's where they will not consolidate. They will just collapse. And yes, you said 2,600. I see that number coming under 2,000 within the next two to three years. Just can't support it. You can't ask for public dollars. What I've done over the years in my business, I've specialized in acquiring distressed theater properties. And it's great to be able to take an old theater and polish it up and advertise and get people to come but the industry is changing so dramatically so quickly that that even these small downtown theaters can't compete with the very large megaplexes everybody that wants to see it sees it exactly when they want to see it and a small guy in a small downtown theater can't compete with that so all the things that we say that we love about old theaters and small festivals as much as we may love it they can't compete Oh, boo. I'm sorry. Yeah, really, because that's where I go to. I know. I go to the old theater. Think how I feel. I got about $2 million of my own money into these things. <laughs> but, the, but that's the handwriting on the wall. How do you compete with Walmart? Well, you just keep going to the places that you want to go to. Well, that's why I love you. You're terrific. <laughs> but it's, it's, it makes I know. It... I know the general public want convenience, and they want it right now. You know, it's uh, accessibility, and that's why we're an iPod generation now. Only here in the Northeast will you find a scattering and a smattering of those theaters left. Um, out in the Midwest you'll find some, but they are the exception, certainly not the rule. Again, back to business. Sometimes a lot of these old theaters are better off being a fond memory, an active struggle. And um, 
Oh, I don't know. Don't give up yet. Well, no, it's not a matter of giving up. No, no, no. I got too much of, too much money involved in these things, but it is the reality. And I know. I, I know so many that have gone, things that I've remembered in the area. Some of them became performing arts centers. <laughs> For a while. And now I think they're completely gone. You know, they're parking lots or something. You know, that is the business, unfortunately, in modern terms. People get their entertainment very differently. Yes. Everything's web streaming. And, you know, I mean, I don't see any joy. And, and watching a feature-length film on a cell phone, but I know that there's scads of people out there who really get a bang out of that, and I'll never understand what that's all oh, about. Don't you think that's a fad? People do come back. I would tend to think so. If you go to a movie theater and you see it presented digitally, it's certainly not an optimum experience. It has to be something better than 35-millimeter projection, not almost as good. Whatever changes there are being made, there are 37,000 screens in the United States today of less than 200 are digital. And, you know, five years ago, I was told that you know, digital projection was going to be the standard, you know, within a year. Well, five years later, if some poor fool bought that equipment, they would have been well, three generations behind. You know, can you imagine buying a computer even today and saying that this is going to be the industry standard for the next 25 years? And it's the same thing with digital projection. If you get a guy like me who's a motion picture exhibitor with 25 screens, I'm not going to spend two and a half million dollars on equipment that I know two years from now is going to be outdated. Plus, I want to be able to give people an optimum motion picture viewing experience. Films are by nature exciting. Movies still possess the beauty to move you both visually and emotionally by the image on the screen. So, I mean, as long as films can do that, there's a market for it. But it's going to be a collective and shared experience in motion picture theater. It's got to be uh, done in a way that's both economical and entertaining. Well, wow. <laughs> I know. I'm blown away here. Uh, I really appreciate you just being so honest about it. I also have been showing films for many years, you know, as an exhibitor. And the bottom line here is, remember, you know, if you build a house, you obviously so you want to make sure that somebody's going to be out there to buy it. Otherwise, you spent a lot of money building a house that will remain empty for a long time. If you're making films, you want people to see it. And unless you have a way for people to see it through someone else who's going to market it for you, you have to just be very concerned. Who is the end user? How does it get there? And uh, we churn out tens of thousands of people with film degrees. And so, you know, they have to be very careful. When you're a film major... Make sure you have a way that you've set this thing up so people can see your product. That's, that's my high, high recommendation. And it's an excellent recommendation. I thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. All right. I'll see you tomorrow. We'll see you at the movies. Okay. Bye. Bye. Okay. There you have it. With a whole lot of insight and information with some very strong points of views here, it can start up new conversations about the state of the film festival and how the festival runs. So what's your opinion here? Will the small theaters survive? Should they survive? Same with festivals. Will the small boutique festival survive the big mega film festival? These are good questions, and I'm interested in hearing from the listening audience. So we're putting up a survey on the website, filmfestivalreviews.com. Let me know what you're thinking, and I'll read a couple of them on the next show. One last thing, I'm heading down this weekend to the Cape May, New Jersey State Film Festival that starts Thursday, November 16th through Sunday the 19th. This is a regional festival down the Jersey Shore and Cape May, New Jersey. In the meantime, I'm working on what the hot film festival regions are and which ones are the next important regions for distributors and buyers uh, looking for films. Got my work cut out for me. Might be coming up for the next couple of shows. So until then, thanks for listening.